0: Welcome to another episode of On The Line. I'm Joe Mullings, and we are out here in San Fran at the Potrero studio with Joe Irvin, CEO. Hey, Joe.
1: Hey, how's it going, Joe? Uh, And I'd like to introduce uh, one of our guests today, uh, who is also one of our technical advisors and clinical advisors, Dr. Greg Shears, a world thought leading expert in critical care medicine. Um, Hi, Joe and Joe.
0: Dr. Shearer, would you share, or can I call you Greg, uh, share a little bit about your background, your history, and uh, sort of uh, your uh, role with Potrero.
2: Sure. I'm a, uh, by training, I'm a uh, pediatric intensivist and anesthesiologist. And um, I have a longstanding interest in um, the use of technology to help reduce patient complications. And um, uh, I was uh, recommended to um, uh, Potrero to assist
0: with uh, um, uh, the clinical side of this medical device development, and your background in uh, medicine, could you share that with us?
2: Sure. Um, I uh, I started out as a um, um, uh, with pediatric training at uh, Wash U St. Louis Children's Hospital. Uh, I was there for a normal residency and chief residency and attended there, and then went to. Um, uh, Johns Hopkins Hospital. I did a full anesthesia residency, uh, pediatric anesthesia fellowship, pediatric critical care fellowship, and then was recruited to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia where I served um, as a uh, one of the medical directors for the ECMO team as well as uh, working predominantly in the cardiac ICU and general ICU and, and also the pediatric ORs. And then Mayo Clinic recruited me to um, uh, joined them in uh, 2001 to uh, head up their ECMO program, and I, I served there as a uh, anesthesiologist and uh, intensivist. Um, uh, and uh, as I say, I've been there since 2001. Got it. And your role with Potrero. um I'm a uh, clinical advisor. Uh, I'm um, helping with uh, development of the Acurin device. It's a um, Rather ingenious uh, remarkable device that has um, is able to uh, has solved problems that we've been grappling with for years and uh, uh, so within one you know within this initial generation that's going to uh, market has has nailed two tremendously difficult problems all in one convenient
1: package, so it's really quite exciting. Yeah. And so, and it's been fantastic working with uh, Greg, you know, over the, the course of my tenure here, which hasn't been long, 10 months, but, uh, and his activity, helping us to develop the clinical feature vectors that will be required for our machine
0: learning algorithms, uh, pretty amazing. What is, from a layperson's perspective, or I've got my mom's in the hospital. And so what would she be susceptible to in the ICU, CCU setting? And um, the Acurin might make that difference?
2: Well, that's kind of a big question. You know, there's, she's susceptible to a lot of potential um, issues in an ICU setting. Um, uh, one, she's, she's in an ICU setting because she's vulnerable. She's got some clinical problem that's broader there, so an ICU level is a higher level of monitoring. and um, uh, and uh, usually or often, at least in tertiary quaternary centers, the, the ICUs are focused on a given organ system or systems that they're specializing in. And um, uh, within that and relevant to the Acuren device, uh, if, if you um, have a, um, a standard urimeter or um, or even the next best thing uh, that's out there or that has been out there, the Criticore device, you have a, a device that is um, a device just draining urine. Um, in the case of a, a just a dumb urimeter, it, it isn't doing anything. You have to um, uh, empty it, put it in a graduate cylinder, try to understand what the urine output is with whatever frequency that can be accomplished. So it's a very archaic uh means of uh gathering a critical bit of information. So,
1: uh, oh, pardon me, uh Greg, for the layperson again, why is for a critical care doctor, urine output so important?
2: Yeah, uh, urine output um is uh, a a body fluid that helps provide the clinician with insights into several organ systems. It um uh, So in order to have urine output, you have to have functioning kidneys that are able to, you know, process the, the blood flow going to it, uh, filtering it, and then um, uh, um, uh, taking the uh, filtered uh, blood plasma, and then uh, reabsorbing uh, the electrolytes and fluids to provide ultimately uh, urine hopefully appropriately concentrated and whatnot, in order to drive that uh, flow to the kidney, you have to have a functioning heart, adequate blood pressure, adequate intravascular volume. So in effect, urine output um, sits at a very critical juncture of, uh, in the ideal circumstance, an optimally functioning cardiopulmonary system driving an adequate pressure head, and then uh, adequate intravascular volume uh, that is being pushed through, and then this sophisticated filter system that the, the kidney provides to then um, receive that volume, eliminate the um, toxic wastes um, that are a component of that, but preserve the overall intravascular volume. So it's a very elegant and uh, uh, highly tuned system of course, in a disease state, it gets out of out of uh, um, balance. And it could be that there's an issue with inadequate cardiac function, not having enough driving pressure. Uh, or it could be inadequate intravascular volume due to trauma, hemorrhage, dehydration, or shock from sepsis, there's so many things that can go wrong. So as a clinician, um, Urine output is amazingly important, and um, so one of the things as I'm um, looking after a critically ill patient, I'm there at the bedside assessing them, and one of the things with the old system of a urimeter is I'm sitting there holding the urine drainage tube and constantly having to milk it in order to have a better sense of what the patient's urine output is because of the inadequacies of the current system. Um, you really would like to know, um, what is that kidney doing for you? Is it having a good constant flow? uh, Because we get called for low urine output and other things, what does it mean? Is there a problem with the drainage? Is there a problem with the hemodynamics? And so it helps clue us in into the, because the kidney is an end organ, it helps clue us in into what is the state of the person and uh, where there may be a problem within the system. So it's, uh, uh, but, but again, the, the issue has been historically, uh, our means of detecting uh, urine output is archaic. We, we, at best, get urine measured by very diligent ICU nurses who are just all over it. At the most, we'll have hourly information, but that information um, is manually transferred from some. Uh, measure and because of the other issues with airlock from from the drainage uh, that information that we get may be highly inaccurate hence the um, The judgments that we have to make about this data could be flawed and so um, Part of why I'm excited about the accurate device is that to eliminate that airlock issue and to get continuous data I mean just think about it this way imagine if um, we only got a heart rate once every hour or once every three hours and what variability you can have clinically if somebody's going into ventricular tachycardia or, or some other arrhythmia or bradycardia and having low output, you can't imagine managing patients like that. It would be nuts. And uh, you could have some tremendously bad outcomes. So with um, continuous urine output now being available to us uh, with reliability, I think we're going to see um, an amazing utility to this um, device, an amazing ability to have better clues and hopefully earlier recognition of disease states.
0: So, and and that was, that was like, Holy education, yeah, right? I feel great. Right? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, sorry, wow. I started no, to no, ramble. No, that no, that. no, no, no. I was, Thanks, I, I was, I was yeah. locked. Oh, I was great. locked, right? Because I don't think many people understand the the holy trinity between the lungs, the heart, and the kidneys, right? And so, what would be the hesitation in general? So let's talk about Accuvent, but in general, of incorporating this sort of technology into the standard of care in a critical care setting.
2: Um, so nowadays. Um, Introduction of, it doesn't matter what the device is, introduction of any new device is going to be um, concerns related to cost, of course, and, uh, and efficacy. Um, and uh, uh, so um, the, um, the fact that any device might not have, uh, there, there isn't going to be a subsequent additional reimbursement Uh, so cost justification is always a key thing and I think again with having more accurate urine output I believe it's going to be obvious I know we're on the front end of this and you know data is continuing to be generated through its use which again it's very exciting always to be on the front end of a of a um, trailblazing technology Uh, but um, one can easily imagine how this is going to help with reducing length of stay, uh, earlier detection of disease states. Um, you know, just as one example that people may be aware of, the um, this whole problem with sepsis, this has been a conundrum for a long time, and the critical care, infectious disease, and other experts have worked very hard to develop algorithms based on our current understanding, of that very um, challenging disease process that kills hundreds of thousands of people every year. So to have a device that can recognize a disease state earlier to allow an earlier intervention could have a tremendous impact on saving lives and reducing morbidity. So it's, uh, again, Uh, um, With time we will see these things evolve, but it seems pretty obvious that um, there's going to be incremental benefits and now it'll be up to us to prove those out.
1: You know, I think uh, earlier we were talking about the the families that are affected. Hundreds of thousands of people that die every year from acute kidney injury. And we oftentimes say patients and uh, I think that's a sanitized thing. that we need to humanize and focus on the families that are affected. It's not just 300,000 lives. It's, every, it's a, somebody that's not at a kitchen table for dinner. And so uh, tell us about, uh, to help humanize it, uh, who is that patient? What's a, can you think of a patient that had acute kidney injury that did not have a, a great outcome?
2: Oh yes, um, you know, this is, um, so I, I think a lot about, um, so one area that I spend a lot of time thinking about is the ECMO population, extracorporeal membrane population, which is a, a salvage strategy using circulatory support to help with cardiac and or pulmonary failure. Um, and I read a lot of the literature related to that and other circulatory devices and also critically ill patients. And so as you look through all of the studies that um, correlate uh, likelihood of death or, or an indicator that uh, that subgroup is more likely to die, acute kidney injury or kidney failure is going to be show up every single time pretty much. It is a very strong indicator of poor outcome uh, if you... Uh, you know, if you have disease X, and then you have disease X plus kidney failure, the likelihood that you're going to die is way higher. So your um, the um, the risk you know that that increases is substantial. So uh, an intervention, uh, a a monitoring technology that could identify um, uh, injury before it is um, before it's non-reversible would be tremendous so the earlier so if if we have a chance to do such a thing it's going to have to be earlier because once you know if if you've had kidney damage beyond a a reversible point uh, then you're really going to be in trouble then we're talking dialysis and or if the patient's an appropriate candidate uh, a a transplant so uh, renal failure is a terrible um, thing to have it's uh, you know, if you get into the chronic phase and have to have a fistula and go through dialysis, very difficult, uh, very expensive. I mean, so uh, you know, you could talk about these things forever. The if you look at like the CMS budget, um, a full twenty-five percent of the budget um, for our healthcare system from CMS goes to kidney failure. <laughs> it it is uh, it yeah. is terrible. So it is a uh, and we have, you know, you know, uh, there's many bad things that are helping to drive the uh, growth of kidney failure, um, the uh, obesity, uh, type 2 diabetes, all kinds of things are really making it a, 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 a terrible thing. And um, within, the, the question always comes up, how much of these things can we reverse? How much can we catch early? And if you look at... Uh, it's amazing if you look at some of the data related to urine output, how that shows up repetitively as a reliable early indicator of renal function. I mean, sh- nobody should be surprised by that. We've never had the ability to have trusted urine output regularly. Even in some of the really good studies, the best they can do reliably is like every three hours to, to put together that data. So. Now to be able to get it one hour or less uh, as you guys continue to push the envelope, wow. It's going to open up whole new pathways of early recognition of disease state because the kidney functions like, I hate to use cliches, but like a kid, the canary in a coal mine. It is an early indicator of so many things. Uh, There is some lack of specificity with dropping off of urine output, so clinicians are still going to have to at least early on until smarter systems are developed, look at why the drop off of urine output. But I'm sure as machine learning and artificial intelligence grows and is incorporated algorithmically into these devices, we will have even smarter systems that help the clinician identify disease states earlier and hence have a more specific
1: uh, intervention that can help patients. So. Do you mind if I ask? it? Uh, so, speaking of, put your futurist hat on. Uh, the ideal hospital in the year 2040, what do you see? The ideal hospital? Yeah. What does it look like 20 years from now? Um, and how is it different from today? Well, um,
2: I hope the ideal hospital maintains the focus of the patient comes first, that there is nothing more important than the patient and that all decisions are made around that, that if they, if they keep that beacon, it'll be a good place. Um, of course, um, the, we have many pressures nowadays that we're all fighting. Um, the cost of healthcare is a big problem and we, we need to keep costs down. We, we need to be smarter in terms of how we provide medicine, and we need to, so hence we have to be more efficient. Um, there are, again, I, I apologize for my rambling, because there's so many thoughts coming into my head. I, I, I work at a, a phenomenal place with amazing people, and I'm very lucky uh, about that, for that. Um, I, I There's... You know, the, you cannot underestimate the importance of quality clinicians, clinicians at the bedside. Um, uh, there is nothing more important in an organization than its culture and its people. Uh, and that is driven, that culture is driven from the top. So we, we look at our leaders, uh, again I'm blessed with amazing leaders, and um, they transmit, they help guide us with the culture of what how we can best serve patients. So I'm hoping that all of these human components, even before we talk about the technical side, get preserved because that is the ideal um, healthcare system. And then um, uh, because we have the human pressures with these personnel of other opportunities, for example, in the old days we used to have nurses that would be around for a decade or two, and they were as good as any physician. They were just so smart and experienced. And those are the kind of nurses you wanted in your ICU room. And you you knew when, you know, Jan is on or somebody, you were like, oh, yes, it's going to be a good night. Um, but um, the, the problem, like with all of us, is that the cream of the crop people have other alternatives these days. They go to CRNA school. They go to NP school. Uh, and, um, and so we lose some of that. So um, engineers uh, and medical device people have to think about how, how can we help in these systems that have some of this intellectual side draining uh, that we didn't have um, happen before, but now we have to compensate to maintain safety. So it's necessary to develop smarter systems to assist those at the bedside. It's not like the people at the bedside are any are less bright, but they're less experienced and they're moving through faster. So they don't have the um, the knowledge of time, but they're they're smart and good people. So how can we assist them? To continue to maintain the safety of uh, care through providing insights that maybe the the human can't, and you know it's it's intriguing to think about that that hospital of the future. How um, let's say artificial intelligence, machine learning, and integrating those things into a smarter device to alert us about an impending condition that even a skilled clinician wouldn't pick up so quickly. There's indications of this sort of thing uh, in in various parts of medicine now um, where one can identify a a hazard well before a clinician could. And so I see, you know, again, devices like um, Acurin is going to readily be able to do that with the things that you guys are working on, it's quite amazing how that's going to get integrated into that machine of the future, that device of the future that's really going to help the bedside clinician and in doing so significantly help the patient. So the um, compliance uh, is always a challenge when you have a human involved. Understanding the human factors and engineering out compliance issues, reducing risks, uh, and making the system smarter. That's, that's what the future is going to be. So technology will continue to help us um, improve patient safety and make better care. And I think as I'm watching the trends out there, the, um, the use of um, devices and incorporating data in an algorithmic form to help with uh, both identification and, and helping with decision-making later is really going to improve health care and compensate, at least to some degree, for the exodus of the more senior people uh, that we have uh, that have been, let's say, the continuity and the safety. We're, we're, we need safety coming from a different way. And I think, I think the, uh, we'll, we'll have a balance. A balance will be struck. I, I don't know, um, you know. It's hard to know all the other trends and things that will
0: happen, but I, I see that as a very positive thing that will help us. Greg, you had mentioned the word that <clears throat> I think is the boogeyman in, in, in med tech and med device is cost, right? How is cost defined uh, at your bedside?
2: Yeah, um, and that's a great question. Um, as a clinician, uh, truthfully, I don't define it at all because uh, the cost component is a, a gateway that I don't intervene at. I, um, I'm given tools that I use to care for patients so I, it's not um, we've always been conscious of cost that's been kind of driven into us for years so we try not to be wasteful ever and, and we try to always do things for the right reasons and so that part is ingrained in us with regard to if, if you mean with your question choosing a device or choosing devices um, m- many hospitals um, have a uh, let's say a value analysis committee or something that will review data and need and, and cost and make a decision about, you know, bringing a device on or not. Um, so that's not a process that I'm um, involved in. I'm, I'm on the receiving end of what is available and then using
0: those things. And so there's a hospital, and, and, and I want to stay on that for a second when I think about cost and if AKI is a $10 billion a year cost to the, the market, uh, and I can I can look at a device that comes in the door, and even if it's 2x to the current, as you called it, Eurimeter, um, uh, yet I can easily do the math, go downrange, and clearly save billions of dollars, or even in my hospital, hundreds of millions. How does that math not work out?
2: Um, it's a great question, and um, it should, and it also should be reasonably easy to prove. So, um, you know, in, in medicine, like uh, other disciplines uh, where prospective randomized trials um, are uh, sort of the, um, the golden uh, yardstick against which we, we make judgments and try to be in an un- non biased way, those things are going to help drive change. Um, it's uh but change is always so slow when it comes to technology and there's always it's it, as i've watched it now being the adoption more, of it. The yeah, adoption. the adoption of yeah there's <laughs> you know there's every now and then you see something atypical like iphones or you know boy whoa that was like you know there was a wildfire going through and, and now even, you know six-year-olds think they need iphones uh so it, it's the utility of it just it was just crazy and it just really seemed to take off fast in medicine, bringing in um, new technology, even if it's the greatest thing, can be a real challenge. And there's multiple reasons for that. Hospitals have limited budgets. You're not, not directly reimbursed for that, um, so it's a uh, people want to be a little bit conservative and not jump on something that they're not. It's not clear to them. It's um, advantageous. Uh, I have no doubt. You know, having uh, um, seen uh, what is happening with this device, that it's going to Change medicine. It is it is doing all the right things, and it's it's doing things that have never been done before. So um, even this this first generation device is um, amazing. It, it like I said at the beginning, it's it's solved two problems that have never been solved before uh, in this way. So it is a, a, a brilliant um, uh, device, and then the future of algorithmic development and Um, being able to take data and help with um, uh, decision-making will be even further add to its value. So um, it's a, uh, um, but the, uh, the, the people making judgments regarding introducing additional cost within a health system, people have a very skeptical eye. Uh, and, uh, so it's a, there's a real proof problem and a slow adoption rate to that occurs. It's, it just seems to be sort of the nature of things, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Well, that was an education for me. Completely. It was wonderful. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, again, I, I start rambling. There's, there's a lot of components to this that's very interesting, but, um, yeah, yeah. In a nutshell, that's, that's the issue.
0: I always learn from Greg, you know, just this is seriously, Greg. I mean, I'm sitting here like, that's great. Thank you. Do you want to hit, hit him with your yeah. questions? All right,
1: so Greg, every single week, uh, you saw the, the five questions upstairs. We did one of yours. Every oh. single week, we do the, uh, the five unique questions um, that are scrambled. So like uh, every new employee that comes in, I sit down with, and we go over uh, five questions. And we interview each other. And one, it's a great way for me to get to know the, the employee. And then it's also another way for the company to get to know uh, the people, okay? And so you saw a little bit of it upstairs. Oh yeah. And so now we're gonna finish it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so you're, you're All right.
0: your hands, you answered yep. the first one,
1: right? Yeah, you answered the first one. So what fad or trend do you wish would come back? You said movie theater. Um, driving. Or driving, or driving. Sorry, theaters. driving movie yeah. theater. Um, and then mine was like, a, We'll just do MC Hammer Pants, because <laughs> <laughs> it was worth seeing Kelly dance. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that. I saw it in the hilarious. back, yeah. <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna ask you number two, okay? If you could bring back uh, one TV show that was canceled, which one would you bring back?
0: Hmm.
2: Well, it would be, if I could add on, If it, could I go back
1: in time also? Any, as far back, it's been canceled.
0: So or just isn't put on anymore, right? It was yeah. canceled, right?
2: Uh, boy, that I, you know, that's an boy, that's an interesting thing because I could, I'm sure I could justify a bunch of them. Um, if I could go back in time, you know, I I loved, I, I've always been very tech drawn to tech things, and so Star Trek. The original Star Trek series just is glaring at me. And it, it, for many reasons, uh, the, the times I spent with my friends um, in uh, high school uh, watching the reruns, right. uh, you know, so I, yes, I, you know, so I was born in 60. And uh, so those episodes, they came out, they, it was just a very innovative um Show came out in what, like 65, 66, I think something like that. Three years it ran or something. Yeah, yeah so three years. brilliance brilliant, just right. yeah, brilliant. Yeah. brilliant. They, they were so far ahead, and the, the moral, uh, you know, whether or not you like William Shatner and all that business, but uh, the um, Leonard Nimoy, and uh, I, I don't know if you saw uh, the, the his documentary, I Am. Uh, uh, it was either called Just Spock or I Am Spock or something like that, right. a really quality piece where you get into the head of the person. This was posthumously done um, by his son, uh, who's a director. Mm-hmm. And um, really a family guy, or tried to be a family guy from a supportive standpoint, but Uh, trying to be busy and employed which is hard for an actor to do and you know he took on this weird role which back then was really quite risky uh he had done more conventional things so anyway again i could talk a lot about it but i love star trek i love uh, sci-fi and i would love to either put myself back in that time frame which would mean i'd be a lot younger and i'd have hair or (laughs) um uh or to have it you know uh, to be running and come
0: back out again have yeah. you been a fan, if you don't mind jumping yeah, in into have it, have you been a fan of any of the other Star Trek TV shows? All of it. You have? Oh, yeah, you know, all of I it. Couldn't, yeah. I couldn't, up. I was such a purist. Everything just, else was just, yeah. I couldn't do it. Um,
2: it's um, And it's amazing how these things translate generationally. So my oldest daughter, who's a, a senior in college, um, she is a, a major league Star Trek fan. And um, uh, she, we have, of course, the the DVDs, Blu-rays of all the Old series and also next generation and everything else, and they aren't in my home right now uh, because they're with her. Yeah, uh, you know, so they're gone. They're gone. And uh, you know, with my so I have four kids, two girls, two boys, and uh, with my boys, uh, we always have on the calendar when the next uh, let's say Star Wars is coming out, and so we. We don't watch them independently. We watch them together. So we'll wait for that opportunity. We do our best to do Thursday opening night, and then go to a midnight showing or whatever, regardless of where we are. We try to coalesce and then try to do it. And if we don't, we wait. That's Uh, awesome. Because it's it's a it's a really big thing.
1: I think for me, it's uh, I have like three that four that came to mind. Uh, Happy days. Oh yeah, I loved Happy Days. <laughs> Here goes the song. Yeah, the '57 Chevy. Yeah, <laughs> right. It right. was uh, the it innocence was of the time. It was too. perfect. Yeah, wonderful. Caught caught the essence of it. Yeah, uh, Wonder Years yes. in the the 1980s. I thought that was a fantastically done show. Uh, of course, the A Team. It was just <laughs> yeah. fun. And then uh, the the I think the closest to modern times is uh, I love Lost and the. When that came out, it was brand new. Like, that genre had never really been attempted. And I thought they did a really good job of hooking you every week and the backstories, and so I thought that was neat. All right, you get the next question, so you ask it.
2: I ask this one?
1: Yeah, and then we we just flip flop back. Oh, I see,
2: okay. So what's the last movie that you watched?
1: All right, so this is going to sound um, Emile Zola. Has anybody heard of Emile Zola? Seriously? No? Of course not. Athlete? No. Come on guys. No, I'm just kidding. Of course you haven't. It uh, it won the 1938 Academy Award. And so my wife and I, uh, we just decided like instead of watching all these new movies, uh, that we went back to 1932 and we're going to watch every Academy Award movie in order uh, over the next couple of years. Uh, And so like that's our, we're fuddy-duddies, old fuddy-duddies. But that, uh, that's been fun. And so the last one was last Saturday, and it was the life of Emile Zola, who was a French uh, journalist in the 1860s who, uh, who was uh, just fantastic and caused a lot of uh, uh, justice to be drawn into, into the uh, court system, into the military, and it was just a neat movie. So hmm. that was the last one. How about you?
2: Uh, well it was on the plane over here. <laughs> if that counts. Uh, yeah, it counts. Which one? Uh, it was Coco. Uh, I my heard girls a lot of that. good yeah. things about it. Her and awesome. I'm you know, I'm a I'm a big kid, there's no question. Yeah. And I've got a really soft heart and I really enjoyed watching that. It was a very well done movie and it spoke to the importance of family and um, uh, both living and dead. And, and this is where they cross the side and Yes.
1: I I haven't seen it, my girls love it and you know it's I, I will get to see it I guarantee it cool. but they love it. Yeah
2: yeah, good movie yeah. I would recommend
1: it. Alright my turn. Um, what was your favorite go to restaurant in college? <laughs> um, so
2: I lived a very Spartan life in college and uh, uh, pre-med very competitive or at least I always felt that way and so you um, you used your time extremely well and I um, spent endless long hours in Carol's, um, you know, studying till all hours of the night. So I'm going to give you two favorites. Okay. Um, two favorites, and one was, um, and I don't remember the the name of it right off. It was a, a, a Euros place. Um, getting Euros at 11:30 at night with my friends. So back then, um, you know, the drinking age was 18, and so we'd. Uh, Uh, We would go out after you know 11:30 or so, 12 o'clock. The libraries would be closing down, and they stayed open at this place till like two. And you get this heavily onioned gyros with lots of sauce, and you couldn't stand your dorm room the next day for the smell. But boy, it was just
1: so good. At the time, it was was fantastic. It was often. (laughs) It was just, I'm awesome. just curious, Joe. Do you have a
0: favorite uh, Skyline chili? Skyline. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, I went to school yeah. in Dayton, Cincinnati Ohio. Dayton, Ohio, right? Yeah. Right on uh, Brown Street next to Tim's Bar. Yeah. It's the a unique uh, chili. Skyline it's not chili. It's like, a, unbelievable.
1: It's almost yeah. like a, it's more soupish, right? It is. No,
0: yeah. yeah it or is. Or, it, you know,
2: the spaghetti noodles. And, yes, yeah. on the hot dog. And, right. and yeah. it's a salad bar yeah. with spaghetti. It's, huh. You know, all the neat things. You just, <laughs> your imagination goes wild and make whatever you want. And you can
0: buy it, just so you know, you can buy it frozen. Um, in a supermarket, and it's pretty darn close. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay, I'll have yeah. to try it. With angel hair. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Everybody from Ohio talks about
1: Skyline, yeah. every single person. Uh, for me, it was uh, my brother and I, every Tuesday, there was a wing place, uh, BW3s, and it was, uh, they would do 10-cent wings, and wow. so my brother and I- What's the record? Yeah. Well, we, 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 <laughs> we, would, we would order 40 to 50 wings. But the reason they did this, and it would get jam-packed with people, is everyone would come in and drink beer for the rest of the night. So my brother and I would come in, we'd say 40, 50 wings, and we have four or dollars and we'd drink water. And so we'd eat these oh two boy. big, huge piles of, pla- you know, they love of wings. <laughs> oh, no, they, they did. Every week they saw us coming. And so we would try to get, early, get in early before the crowd so we could eat our wings and get out of there. But for four or five bucks, we were able to eat. A big pile of wings. No angioplasty? No, not yet. <laughs> I have a funny wing story, too, okay. if you want to hear it. Yeah.
2: Um, so um, when I was uh, at um, uh, St. Louis Children's Hospital in uh, St. Louis, um, th- as uh, when I was going home, I was living on Maryland Avenue. There was this uh, bar that made the best buffalo wings, and uh, my wife and I would go there, um, or then when she was my girlfriend, we would go there and um, on the way home and uh have wings and i i just got in my head i needed to learn how to make these and i literally spent an entire month eating <laughs> wings every day at home trying every possible way to, 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 to cook the wing it. to perfect it yeah. and to uh, get the sauce right as well and i did ultimately and i, I continued to make them though it's a little bit time consuming but um, I, I'm a big wing fan and because of the reduced price wing of Buffalo Wild Wings we'll go on Tuesday nights but not 10 cents I wish yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah it's, it was a thing continues to be a thing
1: that's great alright and the last one I think you get
2: okay what song or artist would pop up if you tuned on your iTunes right now
1: probably uh, either YouTube or Pearl Jam and I know they're two very different uh, genres of music, but uh, those are probably the two that would pop up. One of the two. Eddie Vedder so, in some sort or YouTube. So it's funny thing about music, and, and though I have really wide taste and I
2: like yeah. a lot of different things, you always go back to kind of like your um, your comfort food of yeah. music. As Junior high, high school. Yes, yeah. always. exactly always. right. And those songs take you back to those moments yeah. of, when you were dejected, <laughs> <laughs> and all you know, all that all that yeah. goes along with that. And if I pull up my playlist, um, so I love to ski. Uh, first set um, in my playlist is going to be the Eagles, and then the Doobies, and it's just going to go great. right Where in. Where does credence uh, come in? Does credence is Creedence. in there, I absolutely. <laughs> CCR, yep. awesome. Yeah,
0: they're great, and the Eagles are great. What about so, you? So I, I, I just wrote it down, but it's also um, so there's there's Four millennials doing the back end of uh, this production in the studio with us. And then there's, I'm, I'm a 62, you're 60, and Joe, when were you born? 74. Okay. Yeah. So music, when I say, don't millennials answer this? When I say JT, who's the artist? Who is it? It's when, when you say JT, when I say JT. I'm going to listen to some JT. Uh, uh, James... Uh, Taylor? Yeah, Taylor. James, Taylor. James yeah. Taylor. Taylor. yeah. Right? So uh, when I Carolina, sit in the office with yeah. my team. Um, Play some JT. Yeah, what, JT, what is it for you guys?
1: Justin Timberlake. Oh, yeah. no <laughs> oh. Are you kidding me? it goes by JT.
0: No, so we've no. had this discussion so many times. Uh, yeah. JT, I'm gonna turn on some JT, and she's like, Justin Timberlake, really? I'm
1: like. I have some JT on mine, <laughs> JT. yeah,
0: heck yeah. So that's who's on mine, it would be JT.
1: Yeah, not Justin Timberlake. No, thank no, you, Joe. yeah, exactly. Um, Thanks,
0: yeah. Greg. He's done a lot of good stuff.
1: I don't even listen to Justin Timberlake. I only <laughs> listen to records. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: this was awesome. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, thanks, thank you, thanks, Greg. Greg I really appreciate it. it. So this is another episode of On the Line. I'm Joe Mullings in studio at Potrero with Joe Urban. Thank you very much, Joe. Yeah, Dr. Greg Shearer. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Joe. Have a great day.